Week 10 in the Pac-12 has some make or break games, and we're going to break them all down. The second defensive coordinator in the Pac-12 has been ousted. The NCAA finally comes to its knees on the name image likeness deal. We're going to break that down. And the Pac-12 South scenarios and also the college football playoff scenarios. I'm George Reister with Ralph Amston, and this is the Pac-12 Apostles. Ralph, we got a short slate of games this weekend in the Pac-12, but it might be some of the more most important games in the Pac-12 this whole entire season because there are major, major, not only Rose Bowl implications, but college football implications on the slate this weekend. Yeah, I mean, it's there's two prove-it games for the for the two leaders um, in the two highest-ranked teams, uh, two prove-it road games, and then you know on the other side you have a you, you have a couple of teams that have um, maybe overperformed in conference play in Oregon State and UCLA who get an opportunity uh, to show that they can go uh, and get a tough win as well. And I, I mean, this is it might seem like it's kind of a short porch. Uh, we we can, but every single one of these games is incredibly intriguing to me. I totally agree. I mean, you no Friday games too. <laughs> I, such <laughs> Thank a, God. such a blessing. So you don't get weird old stuff happening. And also too, um, there is a there aren't any super late kicks. All of the kicks are right. pretty much at the same time. There is a one. Well, there's a one o'clock Eastern. I'm sorry, one o'clock Pacific, one thirty Pacific. Six Pacific and a five Pacific. That this is the game. This is the time frame that Pac-12 games should be played, so fans can watch them. But I would like one of these games to be early, because then you could probably potentially see every single game, or at least the important parts of them. Right. Yeah. It's 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 staggered so that uh, it's staggered so that unless you're like you. Where you have like a multiple TV <laughs> setup that you're you're gonna have to be flipping back and forth. Oh, this, this is more than a flipping back and forth weekend for me because the Ducks are playing down here in Southern California. So I will be the guy in the stands with my phone in my hand watching football this week. That's who I be. Right. Well, people think you're playing Candy Crush, but you're actually doing work. Exactly. Exactly. Um, the NCAA finally came to its knees this week. They came to their knees, and we have covered this extensively on unafraidshow.com. So if you want to know the details and not just have people just spitting random uh, garbage to you, oh, this is this is going to be terrible for football. This is uh, the schools are going to have to pay the players. Title nine, all the. If you're tired of getting bad information, go to unafraidshow.com. Go under the Business of Sports tab. There are probably 20 articles dating back to everything from the Ed O'Bannon case, how all those things, Austin versus the NCAA, all affect what's going on now with the name, image, and likeness deal. Uh, Also, you guys, this is a Pac-12 Apostles podcast. This is a podcast for us, people who care about the Pac-12, want information about the Pac-12, you guys send us an email if you have anything to say. I'm mad. I am M A D at unafraidshow.com. We appreciate your time 
and yeah, the be a part of the podcast. So Ralph, so the NCAA came to came to its knees, but I am very curious to see what their because their response was, yeah, we need to change with the times. Things are changing in college football, and we want to be and well in college sports, and we want to be on the forefront of that as long as it stays consistent with the quote unquote collegiate model. What does that mean? Uh, it means that they're still not going to do the right thing and they're still going to drag their feet. Um, I think this is an interesting step, especially after, you know, all the hand wringing they did about this even approaching in the first place. This is just the admission from the NCAA that they need states to go out and act in a rogue manner in order to spur them to at least attempt to, to turn around and do the right thing. But None of this should be happening in the first place. I don't, I don't like the 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 trend of you know moving more toward the name, image, and likeness than I do, you know, a, a profit sharing model that has to do with the tournament and the bowls um, and possible you know gaming revenue and and everything else uh, because you're you're still putting yourself in a situation where there could be very unintended consequences to allowing players to pursue um, financial means that puts them in direct competition with the schools they attend. And who's going to win that battle? Who's going to win that battle when it's, you know, a local uh, supermarket chain or a car dealership that typically donates to the program that then wants to turn around and reallocate those funds to players in general you know at what point does a program start to resent its own players for taking money out of out of its pocket you know i think that there are certain things that that could come out of profiting off your name image and likeness that benefit a very 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 few uh when all that had to happen be for this to even you know uh to probably have been kick down the can for another 10, 12 years is to say that, hey, we're making an absolute truckload of money. We're making money hand over fist. We have to spend every penny of it because technically we're in a nonprofit situation. And instead of running down to the local printer to buy, you know, 3,000, 4,000 more posters to hang or, or spend the money on billboards just to make sure that you got rid of it, put that money in a trust for the students you know, kick kick them a few extra hundred in their stipend uh, every single semester, and then put the rest in a trust uh, that they can access upon graduation, so that they have a little bit of cushion, you know, to move forward. Had you set up those things for the players, I don't think there would have been this other major issue. And I get that players should be able to profit off of um, just like any other student in any other collegiate situation. I get that. It just it. Without the NCAA being the one to lead the way on this and set very specific rules, uh, they're just at the mercy of all these different states and they're having to cobble something together that's either not going to be enough or it's just going to be enough to get the states off their back. And I I just hate to that anybody is being reactionary in this situation instead of innovative. They need to be innovative. And well, they, they had five years to do it. They had five years. And You're then right. uh, California starts this legislation. And then the NCAA says, oh, we're going to put together a working committee. This is May or June. 
going to put together a working committee. So we couldn't do anything in five years, but now we can do it in five months because. Oh yeah. No, it'd be like telling your kid, like you're moving out when you're 18, you're moving out when you're 18, you're moving out when you're 18. And then all of a sudden, six months before your daughter turns 18, she gets a boyfriend that's three years older than her. And he's a jerk. And you're like, Oh, I told her she was moving out when she's 18, but she's definitely going to move in with this guy. And so all of a sudden you're like, all right, you can live here for six more months. <laughs> like you've been backed into that corner, right? By, by yeah, the circumstances. Doing, yeah. This is not a case of, Oh no, we, we, we've had a change of heart to do the right things. And you are completely right that they've put themselves in an untenable situation in that, it's whatever they come up with is probably not going to be enough because each state has come up with their own individual legislation. Like you have California, which allows players to sign with agents, get endorsement deals, all of that, which I actually like better than the revenue sharing model with the teams. Well, with the schools, because I think when you get into the revenue sharing model with the schools, you run into title nine issues. You, you, it's, how does it benefit the masses versus the few? Um, I believe that when you allow the young people to go out and make money, because mind you, the majority of this money that would be able to be made off their name, image, and likeness is not just from endorsements. It's from them being able to hold camps in the summertime, for them to be able to do teaching lessons on certain things like do private lessons for quarterbacking, wide receiving, uh, I'll be basketball. Do a backyard birthday appearance. Like, yeah, any of that. So it allows them to do all of those things. And then you have in New York where there's added in the revenue sharing model for, uh, for ticket sales. And then uh, in New York also, they say lifetime, well, they that there's medical insurance for players who end up being hurt while they're in college, not total health insurance, but on those particular body parts or that particular body part that yeah. was severely injured. And then you have in South Carolina where they said that the that there would be a five thousand dollar up to a five thousand dollar payment from the school itself. So how, at this point in time, the NCAA said it wants to have this into effect in 2021. So you're saying, how on earth do you expect to satisfy all of these different states? It's too much. And now, yeah, you have different people who want different things and think things are better. And then you have the idiot Senator Richard Burr, who made the most, maybe one of the most unpopular tweets of 2019. And you know that a tweet is unpopular when you when your number of retweets and likes is a fraction of the number of comments, which doesn't definitely doesn't count. Everybody who roasted him in a quote tweet, as I did yesterday, uh, just trying to figure out why a Republican senator wants to increase taxes and discourage industry. Like yeah, so, the, it, it comes off honestly looking like, like a none of his principles are actually his principles, and b that he's just mad that some young black kids are trying to get on. Yeah, that, that ooh. 
oh man, like you can't figure out why. So here's what his tweet said. He retweeted the Associated Press that just broke the news that said the NCAA will permit athletes to be compensated for their names, images, and likenesses, Board of Governors says. That's what the quote tweet says with a link to an article. There's no uh, hyperbole. There's no opinion. That was just news. He quote tweets that and says, if college athletes are going to make money off their likeness while in school, their scholarships should be treated like income. I'll be introducing legislation that subjects scholarships given to athletes who choose to quote unquote cash in to income taxes. What was your quote tweet about that, Ralph? And then I'll give you mine. I said we're getting so mad at college kids that we got Republicans proposing tax increases and discouraging industry. And then and then from that point, I went on to say that the entire point of what colleges have been trying to do forever and ever and ever is not have their uh, their student athletes designated as employees. But the minute that you tax their scholarship, you designate them as employees, which is what the colleges have been trying to avoid. Yeah. So he, th- this tweet was so stupid that it hurt. I mean, like it, it hurt my brain because if you designate them as employees, now you have opened up a ridiculous can of worms that you do not want to get into. So that's the first thing. You are a hundred percent right, Ralph. So what I said is, uh, I quote tweeted him, I said, so will you be introducing legislation to tax kids on academic scholarships who work as well? I guarantee the answer is no. The The last thing we need is more politicians trying to legislate something they do not understand and are not part of. This is so dumb that it hurts. Right. And I, and I fully believe that like th- this would get voted down hard. And it, even if it was passed through, that it's fairly unconstitutional. But I mean, <laughs> here's the other side of that. This would probably cause us to have to examine what the actual cost of a scholarship is because it's not the sticker price. What somebody is willing to pay a college to get an education there is not what it costs the college to educate and feed and house a student athlete. It's ju- it's just not. Uh, if the dorms are already built and bought and paid for and those rooms are sitting there designated for student athletes and it's just a bed that they get to sleep in and it wouldn't be filled by a non-athlete anyway if it's that part of a dorm, then you can't put the price that a regular student would pay to sleep in that dorm onto the room that the athlete sleeps in. You can't say that a lecture hall with 400 kids or an online classroom with 25 kids that also has an athlete thrown in costs the school X number of dollars to then educate that athlete when the space was already available in the first place. So like you, you cannot, you, you're going to find out real quick that the retail cost of a scholarship is just what they tell people an athlete's scholarship is worth when the truth is there's all sorts of other things that factor into it and go into it. Are they going to tax the training sessions? Are they going to tax them on the time spent using um, you know, the different trainers and, and things available to them and tutors? It, it, it is 
quite possibly the dumbest can of worms to have ever been opened um, by a North Carolina senator that makes you wonder who from the NCAA was in this guy's ear. If we open up, you know, uh, his donation history, are we going to find Mark Emmert or somebody else in there? <laughs> Who's... Whose district is this? What makes him think this is a good idea? And I, right. there's enough, there's enough people that agree with it that it's that it's highly concerning because people think scholarships are free money, and that word, the word "free," should never be used when it comes to student athletes because it's actually an exchange your time and your body for these goods and services. It's not free. It never has been. Because if it was free, it would come without obligation. And nothing as a student athlete comes without obligation. Oh, dude, it, it's it's craziness. And that you made another great point about cost versus value. And as a business owner, I used to, I used to own a cupcake shop. And I remember having this discussion with with my sister when we would give away free cupcakes to places for promotional things. She would say, so our cupcakes cost three bucks. And she would say, okay, George, you gave away 50 cupcakes. That's 150 bucks. I'm like, no, no, that's not true. Because we actually baked 150 extra cupcakes to give away. And the cupcakes range in between 17 cents and 29 cents a piece including labor so i didn't give away 150 bucks i gave away like eight bucks so so and 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 it was and it took her a minute to to get it but she was like oh wow this definitely does make a lot of sense i'm saying because we know how much each cupcake costs versus the value those are two completely separate things. And yeah. when those two things get confused, people start thinking that there's a lot more value in something, e- e- even though scholarships are extremely valued. They are. But the truth is, things have changed. The NCAA was set up originally, it was Roosevelt, right? Who uh, helped get it set up. That way players could make sure that things were organized and weren't being taken advantage of. It was almost like a union for the players. But that was long before TV revenue, which has completely changed the ball game and everything in college sports. And now people were so afraid of what would happen to the Pac-12 if California were to adopt these, were to adopt the name, image, and likeness thing. But now it's a national, it's a national thing. Right. And we're frogs and we're frogs in boiling water. Right. So like this has been this has been heating up over time. We don't realize how drastic some of the changes in college football were. I read a Washington Post article yesterday written in January 1999 saying that nine power five head coaches were hired and or extended in December of 1998. These are head coaches at an average of seven hundred and forty eight thousand dollars per year. At that time, the highest paid coach in college football, and it was by far, was Steve Spurrier, who was making almost $2 million annually, a lot of that money coming from the brand new contracts that they were signing with shoe companies. As of last year, 21 assistant coaches make at least a $1 million a year, and 10 head coaches make at least $6 million annually. 
that 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 basically would mean that by the year 2037 2038 if we were moving at the same rate of increase for coaching salaries your highest paid head coach would be making over 50 million dollars a year you don't think that players who you're giving you know access to all these economics classes taught by tenured genius <laughs> professors can't see all of this money flying around and realize that maybe some of that should go to them. Oh yeah. Yeah. The people, this LeBron James, I'm more than an athlete thing and players becoming more savvy at understanding the economics of the game as professionals has trickled down to college. And the idea that these things are, are, are operating a vacuum is not going to work. And I want to take, take it back to finish it up with, Bill Burr's tweet about scholarships. So with the cost of college already being absorbent and being outrageous, people having so much student loan debt, how do you think it's going to go over well? Because mind you, most, well, not, not most, a lot of people who go to college, because I don't know the statistics exactly, have that they have, uh, that they applied for scholarships while they were in high school. Some of them get scholarships. Some of them are on academic scholarships. How on how well is that going to go over with these people's parents? If if this if Bill Burr in, introduces this leg, legislation, which will essentially because you know it's going to get fought and pushed back on the other side, that scholarships are then taxed. As been and so 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 now you're gonna have student loan debt, and then you're gonna tax scholarships too, dude. There is no way, no chance that this go goes over. This could be his undoing as an elected official. Just this, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's already the biggest mess in the entire world because almost every uh, private loan. You know, when I when I was in college, it was in the middle of of sort of the financial crisis. Banks got out of the business of doing student loans and they moved it all over to mostly government funding anyway, which isn't money that you can put under the umbrella of a bankruptcy if you're if you're somebody who's in deep financial straits. And so uh, these students that are out there not only are experiencing crushing student loan debt to the likes this nation has never seen before they owe that money to the government right and so you know you're already what you're basically saying is if you open up the door to tax scholarships and the government is the one loaning the money you have to take out extra loans just to pay the taxes that you then have to pay interest on back to the government. There's so much government involved in this. And as somebody who trends a little bit more conservative than a lot of the people in, you know, uh, in <laughs> that, that, uh, um, that I'm around, you know, I, I just, it all comes off as taxation and over legislation to me. And I would like to see all of that immediately minimized and I really want to see, you know, uh, Dick Burr is just the perfect name for this dude right now. <laughs> I would really like to see him realize that this abandons a lot of conservative principles and opens the door up for just, you know, an over-regulated, over-legislated, um, uh, ingenuity-crushing type scenario. Yeah, yeah. A Republican saying, we want more 
more taxes that it, it just rings of of just that there's more underneath the surface like why are you bothering these college kids who who hurt you who hurt you it, he's coming off as just like another old white dude mad that he can never dunk yeah and like that's <laughs> Yep. Uh, yeah, we will we will get to more on this as it as it unfolds. But there was some news that unfolded kind of yesterday afternoonish that kind of I did not expect. We saw our second Pac-12 defensive coordinator fired. So, well, actually, well, no, not no, not fired. Well, you, you had Marcel Yates at Arizona fired the first defensive coordinator. He did not get fired in Tracy Clay's at Washington State. We learned he just left a note on Mike Leach's desk and was like, "Yo, I'm <laughs> I'm out." He went he went for cigarettes. He went he went for milk. Told the family he was coming back. He did not come back. He just left a note. But uh, you had Kevin Sumlin fire Marcel Yates, and I hated this firing. I hated this firing because yes, Arizona's defense is not very good this season. But they kind of picked it up in the middle. They started playing better. But the defense is not the problem. It's the fact that Kevin Sumlin won't choose a quarterback. Like it, it, This is more indicative of an offensive problem than a defensive problem to me. Uh, it, they got defensive problems. I mean, they, they, they got plenty of defensive problems. I think that the quarterback issue, um, it, you know, you and I have gone back and forth on this, and I think we agree. Um, but I will say that that they've definitely got problems on the defensive side of the football. They gave up 131 points in the last three weeks to some not very good teams. The team did play pretty inspired there for a minute um, when it came to, you know, the first time that I floated that I thought Marcel Yates would get fired. They went out there and played a really good defensive game against um, UCLA. And so... Um, but they, you know, they, so they fire Marcel Yates, they fire, uh, John rushing, who is their linebackers coach and they promote Chuck Cecil, who just from being down here and being, you know, around the team enough and around their fans enough seems to me to be the most beloved defensive player to ever play at university of Arizona. And there's some risk in elevating somebody who is that loved who is serving in the role of an analyst but was a former NFL defensive coordinator there's some risk in elevating somebody who's that loved to heading up a defense that severely severely lacks the talent to compete at a high level in this conference right now you know we saw John Elway get hired by the Denver Broncos I thought you know, I, there was no greater love affair in the history of my sports life than the way that, you know, Denver Broncos fans fawn all over John Elway. And now they're ready to kick him in his giant teeth because, you know, he can't get stuff right there as a general manager. I worry that the legacy of Chuck Cecil now hangs in the balance with a team um, that's probably going to give up 40 plus to Oregon State this weekend. Well, that that's it. So you fire a defensive coordinator. When you know that he doesn't have the talent to do his job properly, this is a scapegoat move. They're pretty typical. So yeah. you have, and he was there. He was there before Sumlin. So it's one of those things where it's like, all right, well, that wasn't yeah. your guy. Yeah, well, true. 
So Arizona is actually last in the conference in scoring defense. They're giving up 35 points a game. And in contrast, look at Utah. Utah is giving up 10 points a game. Oregon's giving up 14 points a game. Cal, 20. And then and then you start to gradually get, get worse. So that's where, and they're last in the conference. Rushing defense, though, they are uh, seventh in the conference, giving up 159 yards per game. Pass defense, they're giving up 310 yards a game. And in total, that puts them for a grand total of 11th in the conference at 269, I'm sorry, 469 yards given up per game. And when you look at their inter- interceptions, they're third in the conference in interceptions. We'll tie for second with, with nine interceptions. So they're doing a good job taking the ball away, but it's probably because teams are so excited to throw the ball against them. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, but but also, the thing I look at it is, with defense, people don't realize how closely connected defense and offense are. That That they believe that if you have a bad offense and a great defense, that, yeah, yeah we got a chance. Yeah, no, not really. Because if your offense is not moving the football, your defense is continuously playing in short fields, which makes it very difficult. And then you add in Arizona's the worst punting team in the Pac-12 at only 35 yards a punt. How are you supposed to how are you supposed to survive like this as a defense? I mean, I, I feel like you could put the 85 Bears in in a situation where if they're always playing from the 50 in, the 40 in you're they're going to get a lot more points scored on them. It doesn't matter who you have over there. I mean, mind you, it doesn't have to be 35 points a game, but they're going to give up a lot more points than they would if they had a better offense. And the players spent so much time this year defending Marcel Yates and putting responsibility on their own shoulders that it really makes you wonder if they're behind the firing, if they believe that it's a good idea. Like, I'm sure Chuck Cecil will do a good job. He He's an easy guy to like. He's all about that team. But, you know, I'm on Chuck Cecil's Twitter account right now, and he's already, like, favoriting tweets that, you know, different journalists uh, fired off down here saying, like, you know, Kevin Sumlin should have let him coach in the first place. So that's not great. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, this is, uh, I, I just think that it's kind of a recipe for disaster down here. I don't think Kevin Sumlin um, – I'm I'm not sure if he understands what it is that he's working with in Tucson and some of the drawbacks and limitations to uh, to recruiting down here. But it, it seems like he has what he wants on the offensive side of the football. Now, if he would just make a permanent move toward that, you know, with Grant Gannell being his his quarterback and them using the pass to to set up the run, maybe they'd have the ball for a little bit longer and have less turnovers and less three and outs, which would give their defense and their very, very young secondary um, some breathers uh, as, as you said, but as it stands right now, you know, even when this team was four and one, I told you, I thought they were going to finish four and eight. I haven't changed my mind on that. Like this is not a very talented team and needs more time, especially on the defensive side of the football to sort of grow up together. And, um, and 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 you know now they have an interim defensive coordinator, and I don't think that that's necessarily going to be the most helpful thing. Um, you know, while they're waiting to figure out whether or not they're going to have Chuck Cecil on there permanently or well, not. Well, okay, 
so mid-season firing actually this is not even a mid-season firing this is the end of season firing it they i i don't know how much you really gain from them because you put yourself in a recruiting situation now right in that there is there is a continuity you're gonna have negative recruiting from the people you're competing against like colorado arizona state utah you know all all those teams cal who you're kind of in that tier with you're gonna have negative recruiting from them saying oh well you don't you don't know kevin Sumlin. he might be on the hot seat who's gonna be your defensive coordinator what if you don't fit in the scheme those are the things that that happen and what is what is the new uh defensive coordinator going to do what is he gonna do is he gonna uh come up with some new scheme now no he can't it's too late in the game and you're dealing with college kids like you can't flip the scheme the only thing that he can do is take the same defense that they're running make different calls and maybe tweak the scheme slightly as opposed to change the scheme because that won't work mid-season right and they're sitting right now as far as recruiting goes just about five weeks away from the early signing day ranked 65th in the country and most of their more decent recruits are on the offensive side of the football their highest ranked i mean they they they, they've got an outside shot at a kid named jason harris uh who's a six foot eight defensive end um and and has about 20 offers in both football and basketball his dad sean harris is like inducted into the u of a Hall of Fame and his brother Jason Harris is probably their best defensive lineman now. So they think they're probably going to land him. But other than that, you know, most of their recruits that they've landed this year, their three-star recruits are on the offensive side of the football. On the defensive side of the football, you know, they got a couple of defensive backs and a and a and a defensive end um, that are, you know, they're okay, but there there's no there's no world beaters. You know, they've only got 13 commitments. They're ranked 65th right now. And the best guy they probably have is a guy named Kerry Crump, a uh, defensive back out of Culver City, California. So, you, you know, you, we'll see if they're at risk of losing any of the commitments that they they currently have. But they're already kind of behind the eight ball when it comes to recruiting in the first place. Um, but maybe Chuck Cecil, a guy who actually does love Tucson and is, you know, has spent a lot of his life there can recruit to to Tucson a little bit better than, you know, Marcel Yates who came over from Boise state a few years ago. So maybe it'll actually give him a boost. You never know. Yeah, but Wasn't that what Kevin Sumlin was brought over for was to be able to recruit. I mean, it's the same thing. Like, yeah. Like, yeah, because he, he had Texas A&M in the top 10 over and over. Yeah, and over. I mean, it's the same thing like Chip Kelly at UCLA. He should be able to recruit. You bring in, um, I mean, you look at people who are crushing it in the Pac-12 recruiting and have been. You have Washington crushing it, Oregon crushing it. Um, Stanford has been crushing it, e- even considering their circumstances. They're always in the top 20 in recruiting. And, and you have USC, who used to be crushing it in recruiting. And that's part of the reason why I say that that they have to let Clay Helton go because they can't recruit right now. And if you and recruiting is the lifeblood of a program, you can have the greatest coaches that you want to have. Look at look at how most people regard uh, Justin Wilcox and his staff at Cal 
versus the results that they're getting this year because they're just short on talent and they lost their quarterback. Recruiting matters. And it's going to matter at UCLA because if Chip Kelly doesn't find a way to recruit better athletes, it, the rebuild is going to take even longer. Yeah. And then honestly, like in Kevin Sumlin's tenure so far at Arizona, there's not really one single player that they've gotten that they shouldn't have. There's not really, you know, they Jalen Curry was a very talented wide receiver, but guess who his high school quarterback was? Grant Gannell. Like he came over with his high school quarterback. So that's not a huge surprise. Um, you know, they, so he's not doing the best job in the world of, of, of recruiting down there. The defense is in shambles. He's continued to have the same type of weird quarterback issues that he brought over from Texas A&M. It just, it all spells trouble. And, and, you know, maybe Chuck Cecil is the answer, but, you know, I don't think they're going to jump from 11th in the conference up into the top half when they still have teams, you know, when they still have to worry about Oregon state this weekend. Yeah, And that's not going to be an easy win, but we'll, we'll get into those in just a minute. Um, uh, uh, we we want to talk about the, the Pac-12 South scenarios because right now you have the um, – in the standings, you have – oh, what did I do with them? Okay, so in, in the standings, in the Pac-12 South, you have uh, USC leading the conference with – the uh and they control their own destiny. There's only one team that controls their own destiny in the South at USC. They win their last what uh four pack twelve games and they are in. They play Oregon this weekend, Arizona State, Cal, and then UCLA on November twenty-third. And mind you, we didn't necessarily believe that we would be in this situation, but here is the problem if USC wins. U.S. in this, this goes to Pac-12 schedules, which are just so insanely dumb sometimes. USC plays their last game on November 23rd. Everybody else in the conference plays that very next weekend. So USC has a an idle week, an off week, the last week of conference play for everybody. And then there is the Pac-12 championship game a week later. So how on earth is it competitively fair to have a team coming off of a idle week, an off week, playing, and they already know who they're going to be playing because unless Oregon drops four straight games, including, uh, yeah, so uh, unless they drop to USC, Oregon State, um, Arizona State, and uh, Arizona, they are going to they would need to lose all four of those games and then have Oregon State win all of their win their last five games to to not win the conference. So how on earth is that competitively fair, Ralph? I you know, I don't think it is, but you also can't, you know, plan for USC to have been in the mix. Um, you know, obviously rest is a helpful thing in this conference. You know, Arizona State had three tough games in a row and runs into UCLA, who had played one game in 20 days, and look which team looked more fresh. So, you know, obviously you can get a competitive advantage from rest, but I think we've also seen time and time again in the NFL, you know, teams that earn these bye weeks 
end up looking like crap when the other team has been in playoff mode for a week already. So, you know, it's, sometimes it can be a wash. Um, And uh, I mean, I I don't know. I I think that uh, it, maybe that's something that could work out in, in USC's favor, but then you're also saying like, Oh man, the, the, you're saying like, oh, wow, Clay Helton has an extra week to prepare. Um, you know, that brilliant coach, he'll do something with that. You know, I don't think that anybody's out there saying okay. that Clay Helton is, uh, is right. Dexter, so, uh, you know, in his so laboratory. Would saying, so would you be saying a different story if this were Urban Meyer coaching USC? I mean, yeah, probably. Probably, but yeah. So, so that that's the inherent problem. So, you, so you got USC leading the conference, controlling their own destiny. Utah is also at four and one. UCLA is still mathematically alive in the conference for the for for the conference title. Arizona State is at two and three, which most people did not expect. And Arizona State, I'm sorry, Arizona two and three out of the conversation, and. Uh, Colorado is just dead meat. They are dead in the water. So wh- how do you see this thing shaking out, bro? Well, um, the only way that USC can survive, can make a mistake this weekend and survive is if Utah makes that same mistake. Um, and I think that if if that scenario happens, if the Pac-12 North dominates the weekend, uh, and both Utah and USC lose, I think USC is going to win the Pac-12 South. If Utah can take care of business at Washington, I don't trust USC, even if, even if they beat Oregon, I don't trust USC to win four in a row to close the season out. Well, so I think that, well, I think that Utah really determines their own fate going into today because if or going into this this weekend because if they beat Washington all the pressure is on USC to be perfect and I don't think that they will be but if Utah loses I think it's over. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it's a it's a burrito if they lose cuz they would then need USC to lose two more games. Yeah, probably not. Um and then there are college football and Rose Bowl implications that people really don't realize. There is a major league Rose Bowl implication this weekend. So if Washington beats Utah, and then Utah goes on, I'm sorry, and then Oregon manages to get into the college football playoff, now the Rose Bowl gets to choose which team that it wants. And it has a choice, and it would have the choice most likely, provided that Washington finished nine and three, and then Utah finished what ten and ten and two. They would have the choice of, um, and, and then that would probably put USC in a position to win the Pac-12 South. So now you could have a scenario where you have Utah, who's ten and two. Could be a top 15 team, top 12 team. Who gets, um, who the Rose Bowl would have to choose between USC, who played in the conference championship, or Utah, who played in the conference championship with two losses, or Washington, who beat them and 
and and so now you put the Rose Bowl in a position to choose, and then there's a head to head with Washington, and then where would they all be ranked? Who do you think the conference would would choose under those scenarios? I know there's a lot to unpack there. I think that you'd have to go with Washington just because of the head-to-head win, but it gets even stranger than that because what if Utah wins out? And what if you, what if USC wins out also? And then what if USC wins the Pac-12 championship against Oregon? You would have an 11-1 and Utah that's probably not going to make the college football playoff or the Rose Bowl. That's crazy. Oh, dude, that would be crazy. That would be definitely crazy. I mean, have USC win win the conference, go to the Rose Bowl, and then you're sitting there with two teams. You have an 11-1 team in Utah, a 10-2 team in Oregon, and, well, sorry, a 10-3, a yeah. No, sorry, an and 11-2 and right, team, and, and team in Oregon, and you're sitting there. And they could end up in like San Diego and El Paso. Yeah, well, well, I I think that one of one of them would get a New Year's Six Bowl. I mean, I I, I would have to. You'd hope well, so. True. And, and the reason why I say that is because, especially Oregon, because last year Washington State got snubbed and the conference didn't really say much. But I think a lot of that was due to the function of it was Washington State, and then you have Oregon, who's a national brand, which is going to at least attract eyeballs for a. Uh, for a playoff team i'm sorry for a bowl game yeah i mean i'm i'm not team when it comes to this i don't think i'm team chaos because that that would be just such a giant headache to have two teams that probably deserve consideration for major 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 bowls and to have one of them end up you know in the holiday bowl uh chasing a 12th win Oh, against an unranked team or against a team from the bottom of the yeah like yeah taking on taking on a seven and five iowa state in san diego dude so here is what i believe is going to happen in the uh college football playoff at this point we we can cover it every week i think that you have obviously i think an 18 playoff is the way to go you have the five power five champions two at large bids and the highest ranked non-power five school I think that that is the ultimate way to go. You reward teams for winning their conference. And also you have ways to accommodate teams like it, like that chaos scenario with Utah. Chaos scenario with uh, with Bama beating LSU. Same, same thing. So I think that right now that you have the scenario of that you're going to have an undefeated Big Ten winner in Ohio State, Penn State, but Minnesota could crash the party. And I think that it's crazy that Minnesota could jump through all the requisite hoops, finish 13-0, and people would be debating in the Big Ten, and they would be debating, oh, should we put Minnesota in or should we put in an undefeated, I'm sorry, a one-loss, didn't win their conference, uh, Alabama. I'm like, come on, bro. Come on. Alabama's schedule is cupcakery this year. It's trash. And you would be debating that. So there's the undefeated Big Ten winner. Then there's the SEC champion, provided that it is not a two-loss Florida or a two-loss Georgia. And because under that scenario, the SEC champion could either would probably get left out, depending on 
how strong everybody else's resume is, or you could have a one loss team or two SEC teams get in. Then there's Clemson, who doesn't, uh, for the third spot, who doesn't, I mean, mind you, these are not in order of, uh, you know, like one, two, three, four of who they would play. Um, but you got Clemson, no competition in the ACC. They'll finish undefeated with a string of blowouts. And I think that the Pac-12 is actually in that fourth position in terms of priority at this point in time, especially if Utah and Oregon finish 11-1 and one playing the Pac-12 championship, you're going to have like a number four team or a number five team playing a number six team or a number seven team. And that's going to be hard to keep the lose the winner out of the college football playoff. And then you have the Big 12 pulling up the rear right now because Oklahoma lost, but their one loss is better than even Georgia's loss to South Carolina. And then you have Baylor, who's nobody talking about in the same situation as Minnesota. They finished undefeated. How can you keep a team like that out? It's craziness, dude. Yeah, I mean, the 18 playoff would have been the right thing to do all along, but we know that the NCAA only moves incrementally like we we spent the whole beginning of this podcast talking about how they were only reactionary to the whole you know issue of compensation the only way to force the ncaa's hand on issues like this is to have a four-team playoff where somehow minnesota and uh minnesota and baylor both go undefeated and get left out or something like to have to have something be so controversial and to happen to a fan base that will never shut up about it that, you know, things eventually uh, are, are changed. And I think, you know, the craziest thing about all of this is, the, you know, the, the NCAA, what are they addicted to? Money. Like, what will the playoff bring in? Like, more money. It's not like there aren't eight deserving teams every single year. It's not like we're moving to a 32-team playoff, you know. And if you take the highest group of five-ranked team and you, you line them up against the number one um, – team in the country, you know, I think that that's a game that people would absolutely die to be able to see, you know, that, that, that's what, you know, that's all UCF ever wanted. That's all Boise state ever wanted all these, all these years. Um, so I love that scenario. I think that's definitely the direction that they should move in. Um, I'm probably still two weeks away from being able to even discern what possibilities exist. Um, for, for the college football playoff, because we still have, you know, there's plenty of nonsense that, you know, not, not every conference is the PAC 12, but there's plenty of nonsense left to be had in my opinion. Oh, for sure. For sure. I definitely agree with that. Uh, now we can get into our games, Ralph. What, what, what I have noticed is what I've noticed with you is you have not been bringing up the record of our official record. So I'm demanding on the next podcast that you disclose our records. Cause I've been trusting you to keep score of this. And, and, and you, you, you spiked the football on me when you were 13 and one and I was six and, and I was six and eight. And now I have made a resurgence and a comeback and I need my credit. I'm a credit whore right now. <laughs> All right. I, I, I'll, I'll get you some numbers. I'll get you some numbers. Hopefully I'll have a, Hopefully it'll be a better week for me before. <laughs> okay, I have so to the first game out. up that we got is Utah and Washington. Utah heads up to Seattle. Game's gonna be on Fox. This is a we we've already talked about why this game is so important, but this is a critically 
important game. Oh, but but before we even get into that, I forgot to announce the Pac-12 players of the week. For people who didn't know or see the announcement, you had C.J. Verdell from Oregon, 257 yards, 23 carries, three touchdowns. Uh, offensive lineman Shane Lemieux from Oregon. Defensive player Paulson Adebo from Stanford. Two more interceptions. Um, and his second career two-interception game. Defensive lineman Lecky Fotu. I mean, it, it, they could have given the Pac-12 defensive player, defensive lineman of the week to the entire Utah line for the last two weeks. Um, special teams, Camden Lewis, from place kicker from Oregon. I cannot believe it. A place kicker from Oregon won Pac-12 player of the week. And then also freshman of the week, Keaton Slovis. 30 for 44, 407, and four touchdowns, all career highs. Um, okay, so back to the game in Seattle, Ralph. Who do you have and why? Um, I am going with Washington in this game, and it all has to do with the fact that I don't think that Tyler Huntley is healthy. I don't think he is. I, I think that he was left in a little bit longer than he should have been. Um, against Arizona State, I think that he he looked miserable in in uh, in Cal's game, and really that came down to just being able to hammer, you know, a busted nail. Um, you know, Cal's got enough of their own issues, but I think the team goes as Tyler Huntley goes, and you know, I think that Washington is going to be able to completely sell out for the run in this game because I, I don't, I honestly don't think that that Tyler Huntley is a hundred percent. I think it'll be a really, really, really low-scoring game, but the home team ekes one out and pisses the whole conference off. Um, I, I have a, a, a low-scoring, maybe like a 20-17 Washington. <clears throat> because Utah has dominated the last couple of weeks. They've been a very strong team after their loss to yeah. USC. Extremely. Maybe even the most dominant team in the conference. But I think it, with Oregon, I think you get more people getting getting a better shot, you, you, you know, because they have a bigger target on their back, I think. But, oh, man. See, here, here's the problem. I've said with Utah all year, there's a couple times that Tyler Huntley is going to have to be great, not just good. He's going to have to be great at least two to three times this season for Utah to win the – to win the conference. Well, to, to win at least their side of the conference. And throughout their throughout this season, their running game has been very dominant. Their defense has been very dominant. So the only games that Tyler Huntley needed to be great, the first one was USC, and he was not great in that game. And when, and when I say great, I mean the difference between winning and losing in a special game because in that game he was 22 for 30 210 yards and a touchdown against usc that is like that's even though it's efficient he has to have a game like keaton slovis had maybe not for 400 yards but where his rushing and his and his uh throwing has one of these jalen hurts type games and it always falls on a quarterback if you're going to have a special season to do some special things. And that's where the situation that Utah is in, 
they're going to need to be special because Washington coming off a bye week is going to be mad. And when we watched Washington play Oregon, Oregon was playing extremely well on defense. What Washington did is, if you remember that game, they shifted and motioned pre-snap more than I've ever seen a team do. I mean, it was every single snap. You had two or three people moving, then motioning back. It got, it gets chaotic in terms of the communication on the defense. So Utah's defense is going to have a their toughest game of the season against Washington, I believe. And I, I, I don't think that Tyler Huntley is is healthy. I think that Washington is going to be able to stop the run and better than most people have, and he's going to have to throw. And I don't think it's going to work. I, I am going with the even though I don't want this scenario to happen because I want. Utah and Oregon to end up undefeated the way the conference as a whole has a better chance of getting in the college football playoff. Ralph, I, I, I'm leaning toward the Washington Huskies right now. You know, I, I will tell you there there is one opportunity for one player to absolutely transcend in this game, and that is Zach Moss. And it, I mean, if, if, if Zach Moss, Zach Moss could go out and win some awards on Saturday. He really could. Because I, again, uh, you know, if Tyler Huntley's healthy, then I'm, I would flip this decision in a second, but I, I think it's really going to fall to this running game. And if he, if he's able to play with the grit that he played with, you know, against Arizona state in the second half of that game, um, then, you know, I, and I, I think that they've got a chance. They got more than a chance. Um, but I just think that, you know, they, they've had the benefit the last couple of weeks of, of playing in friendly confines with crap weather. And that has covered up for the fact that, you know, that honestly, if they had Tyler Huntley for the full game against Arizona State, that's a game that they probably win by five, six touchdowns. And they probably be had, they, it would probably would have been 35 nothing over Cal in the first half. I mean, if if they were, if they were fully healthy, I just don't, I don't think they are. That's no inside information. That's just my opinion. And I think that that's, what's ultimately going to give, give Washington a literal and figurative leg up. hundred percent agree that, that stopping the run is going to be paramount. And I can't see because Chris Peterson is a really good coach despite what some Washington fans idiotically want him fired, which, which makes zero sense to me, but um, (laughs) yeah, he's a really good coach and he's going to get this thing. I mean, he's going to have his team very well prepared. Same way he did in the Oregon game, same way he did. So I don't see a scenario where Utah blows anybody out because Jacob Eason, even in the games that he hasn't played spectacularly has not been a train wreck. Like so, so the idea that he's going to multiple picks, or you or Washington is not going to be able to score. Like worst case scenario, worst case scenario for, um, yeah, worst case scenario for uh, Washington. I'm sorry. Well, worst case scenario for Washington. Best case scenario for Utah is a Cal Washington game from this year or last year either a 12-10 game or you got like a 19-22 game, that is best-case scenario for Utah. 
because Washington, I think, is going has gotten their offense together and that they're going to play significantly better. Uh, the next game that we got up is the – oh, oh, and here, here's an interesting stat, though, is you have Pac-12 home teams. Home teams in the Pac-12 are just 16 and 14 in Pac-12 play. And only Oregon, USC, and Utah are undefeated at, at home. Come on, man. That like you're supposed to have a home field advantage that does not exist in Pac-12. You got um also Oregon State playing on Pac-12 network at Arizona. This game is a this game well, obviously is at, at Arizona, but you have Arizona favored by six points at home with a fired defensive coordinator playing against Oregon State, whose offense is on fire and has only been really shut down in the Pac-12 by really by um by Utah. That's the only team that shut this offense down. Jake Lutton, Artavius Pierce, Isaiah Hodges have all been putting up big time numbers. So what's your take on this game, Ralph? Um, I'm I'm not 100% sure. Um, I'm still trying to talk myself into going one way or another. I can tell you that I'm, this is probably the game I'm most excited for uh, just because I want to see I want to see 100 points. <laughs> and I think we might get it um, in this game because of how efficient Oregon State's offense is and how explosive Arizona's offense is. Um, I'm a little bit concerned at what they're going to continue to do and tinker with at the quarterback position for Arizona. So I, I, I'll say this, if they go, if they just go out and say, you know, oh, Khalil Tate had one bad series, we're going to go with Grant Gannell for the rest of the game. Um, I, I don't think they'll win. I think that this is a game that they need Khalil Tate in. And I think that they need the version of Khalil Tate from 2017 who runs with a reckless abandon. And the first time that we even really saw that was just in spurts last week when he went for over 100 yards against a Pac-12 opponent for the first time in two years. And so, I mean, if if they can go out there and they can call a bunch of designed runs for Khalil Tate in order to set up the pass, I think that they'll get this win. But I think it'll be a game where it's like, you know, 50 to 45 or, or something like that. Um, I do think that Oregon State's offense is going to go off. Um, but I I like the home team. I don't know if I like the spread. Um, and I, I, I know that uh, Arizona is kind of a wounded animal right now, so it feels counterintuitive to pick them. But they just play a little bit different um, at home. I think that Washington's a much more talented team than Arizona, but you at least saw them keep that close because it was in um, Tucson, at least for three quarters anyway. So I'm going to go with Arizona in this game. It's kind of a coin flip scenario for me. I say they win um, 51-45. This is a game with a 71 point over under. That lets you know. <laughs> Take it. Take the over. Life, life's too short to bet the under. <laughs> yeah, and and definitely not with these two teams because there is there's about a, a 0.01% chance that this will be a defensive struggle that's not happening because neither team is just spectacular defensively actually they're not even necessarily great defensively 
Um, you have your, you have Arizona, who we've talked. Who are you taking? I'm I'm taking Oregon State, man. I think that it, it's a little bit of an it, okay. It, it's an upset because Arizona's playing at home, but at the end of the day, you know, or that doesn't feel like an upset. Well, it, it really it, does. It does to me when Oregon State is the second worst rushing defense in the conference and Arizona is the bet is the second best rushing offense in the country. And uh, this uh, man, yeah. but, but then Arizona's defense is the second, I'm sorry, is the worst scoring defense in the conference. So I don't even know what, how to make heads or tails out of this, but I'm going with Oregon state to be against you and pick up another win, Ralph. Uh, we got the color. All right. We got the Colorado that. Buffaloes playing against the UCLA Bruins, who I will take ownership of again if Dorian Thompson Robinson is playing. And we both have, and pretty much everybody else I've seen in their power rankings has Colorado as the worst team at this point in time in the Pac 12. And UCLA is trending in the right direction. They're 3 and 5 right now. And truth be told, they're 3 wins away away from uh a bowl game, which I believe is entirely possible. They have Colorado, which is a winnable game. They're at Utah next next week, which I expect them to win that game. I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> um then they play at USC, who they beat last year under these same circumstances, and Cal, who may not have their quarterback back, there is a chance they could win three out of these last four games and make a bowl game. And then, Ralph, you will be looking, oh, my God, if UCLA makes a bowl game after you said they were going 1-11, oh, oh, this will be hilarious. Yeah, I mean, it feels like I it, it, the way the beginning of the season was, Felt like, you know, I called my shot and, and I hit a ball into the sun, but it just was a long fly out. Like, this is, <laughs> it, you know, it's it's definitely, it's, it, it's I've, I've already lost, and so everything on here is just icing on the cake. Um, I, I actually kind of like UCLA in this game if they employ the same game plan they had against Arizona State, which is to just pound the rock with, with Joshua Kelly. I think that that will work against Colorado, what's not going to happen is UCLA is not going to stop Steven Montez because Colorado is not silly enough to have an offensive game plan that doesn't include attacking the safeties and corners over the top. Um, you know, that I don't, I don't really know what was going through Arizona state's mind, you know, when what UCLA's biggest weakness is, is their ability to, uh, to defend the pass uh, in, 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 you know, man situations deep down the field. Um, you're not going to have to worry about that with Colorado. They love to air it out. And so uh, I, I do see UCLA winning this game, um, but I think it'll be, I think it'll be on the higher scoring side. You know, I'm thinking maybe like a, like a 34, 27 um, UCLA win. Okay. See, now you're coming with me. Now you're coming with me. Uh UCLA is favored by six and a half points in this game. The question, the biggest question is Dorian Thompson Robinson's health. He went out at the end of last game with a knee injury, but 
They said he was going to practice this week and is expected to play. So that gives them a much better chance. And Colorado is just, they played better last week after getting just, just boat raced against Oregon and against Utah, right? Yeah. And I mean, they love, they love playing in Boulder. They absolutely love it. I don't, I don't know. I, I can't remember if they played Utah yet, but I, they, 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 they've, they really have struggled to play on the road. They got killed by Washington State. I think it might be. Yeah, that's who I um, meant. Yeah, we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, but they, yeah, yeah. You know, that's they, what I meant. They don't play Utah until the last game of the season, which will be a clubbing. <laughs> that will be yeah. a. I can pick that game right now. That will be a drubbing. It doesn't even matter who's playing quarterback for Utah. They look good in Boulder. Um, there are some games where they start slow. There are some games where they start fast. It's just a matter of that Colorado has yet to put a full game together from start to finish. You know they have talent. You know that they can move the football. You know that they have exciting athletes. Um, but for some reason, they can't execute for the full 60 minutes. And uh, you know, I think that that will continue to plague them, especially playing on the road this weekend. All right, the last game up this weekend is, you know, a game that's near and dear to my my heart. And when you look at the ticket, I, I always keep meaning to bring up the ticket prices because I always like to pay attention to them. Because when on um, on some of these ticket sites, so if you go to, if you're on ESPN.com and you click on their ticket things, right? So it shows you the lowest ticket prices. Lowest ticket price for Utah in Washington, 17 bucks. Oregon State, Arizona. My mind you, you're gonna be hanging out with God in these stadiums if you buy these tickets. But 14 bucks for Oregon State, Arizona. UCLA, Colorado, 15 bucks. And Oregon USC, $97 to get in the door, dude. Wow. Um, <laughs> and that's you still gotta pay for parking in that neighborhood, too. Oh, oh, if you've never been to a game at the Coliseum, bring Uber there. Do yeah. not do not park there if at all possible. Parking is outrageous. It would actually be cheaper for you to park about 5 miles away from the stadium for, you know, in a parking structure for, you know, for like 8 bucks and then Uber back and forth after the game because the closer that you are to the stadium i have seen as much as because mind you they raise the price, prices depending on the quality of the game and this is a quality game this is going to be and usc fans believe that they have a chance to win you will see parking that's right across the street for a hundred dollars american u.s dollars to park near the coliseum and if they were playing like Utah, it would be fifty bucks, which is still outrageous. Yeah, are you going to end up? I, I, I parked in uh, some dude's backyard who's got a Dodgers cap and a and a, and a neck tattoo who charges you fifty bucks to, you know, to to to, to park your your car in his yard. And find out it's not even his yard. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, you it, it it's a confusing situation out there. Yeah, totally. Um, Oregon's favored by four and a half points, which is <clears throat> probably a little bit closer line than 
I think it probably should be, but USC's receivers have been so damn dynamic that they seem like the one piece to the puzzle that could keep this game close. Yeah. Uh, it's a Thomas Graham game. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah, a lot to riding on Thomas Graham. I know that makes you nervous, but he's coming back home. Um, and, uh, and, and, and hopefully he can hang because, uh, you know, these are some of his old seven on seven buddies. Um, and they're the best of the best. And I, you know, I, I, I think that Lenore and Graham, this is the true test of whether or not this defense deserves to be in the conversation for a potential run at a national championship. You have to be able to handle this, this wide receiving unit, um, uh, you can't really ever count Slovis out of the game, so you got to be working it on offense. You you have to um, you have to be efficient on offense, and then you have to realize that even if you're up two scores in the fourth quarter, it doesn't necessarily matter with the way that that this USC offense runs. Um, but you know, I think that CJ Verdell is peaking at the exact right time. I trust Oregon's offensive line against uh, USC's defensive line. I don't think USC defensively has shown that they have the ability to slow elite teams down. Um, so I, I do. I like Oregon. I like Oregon in this game. I think that it'll be dangerous. I think it'll be another. You know, I think it'll be Oregon's like third nail biter in four weeks. Um, but I, I do like the Ducks to uh, to to get a win at the Coliseum. Yeah. I okay. So it could be a nail biter. I just don't think it ultimately will be a nail biter. Um, I think Oregon that they get up probably 17 in the third quarter and then Slovis tries to mount a rally. That's how I think this game goes because Herbert has not been turning the, the ball over knock on wood. He's um, only one interception on the season. And USC is having trouble running the football. They are in in the conference running the football. USC is eighth in the conference at 146 yards a game. Oregon is number two in the conference, only allowing a tick over 100 yards a game at 101 yards per game rushing. So that means that you have to throw the football like that. That is the way. Is to throw the football. But then Oregon's defense is only allowing 207 passing yards a game. And I, I think that they're going to play defense much the same way that they're going to take a lot of pages out of the BYU playbook, drop a lot of people, and make Keaton Slovis try to – because Oregon's pass rush is really good as well. I think they lead the conference in, in sacks, I believe. Actually, they are – yeah, they're number one in the conference in sacks with 23. This is a situation to where that they can they can get home without blitzing, cover and double cover Pittman and um and Vaughn's the big guys, give them some safety help, keep USC in third and long. And this could be a, a very good statement game for the Ducks on national television. I like them to cover the four and a half. I, I'm laying the four and a half points with them. I think that I would take this line. I would take the Ducks even if they were favored by seven and a half points. I just want to see Johnny Johnson score a touchdown to Coliseum. That's all I want. 
that 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 that'd be a good uh, that'd be an early Christmas present for me. I love that kid. I know the amount of work that he's put in to 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 get where he's at. I feel like they're finally using him in a more appropriate manner to his skill set. And it would be pretty cool to see him in 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 LA standing in the end well, zone. Well, uh, I I hope he scores multiple touchdowns, and even bigger than that, I hope he catches all the balls they throw to him, which is which yeah, is even more yeah, important. Yeah. <laughs> even if he doesn't yes. score, just catch the balls they throw to you, and I will be fine. I will give you a medal because, I mean, imagine because Michael Pittman almost went to Oregon. Imagine if Justin Herbert, one of his wide receivers. It was, was was Michael Pittman. Wow. Wow. And also, I yeah. think his brother, his brother, little little baby Pittman, number four for Oregon, I think he shows out, even though he's a true, true freshman, I think he does have a big game. So, Ralph, we have wrapped up week 10, the preview in the Pac-12 Apostles. So much to talk about. I can't wait to get to, you know, to, to see these scores and these tallies. At the end of the at the end of the week. And wait, hold up. I, I was unclear. Are you taking Oregon or are you taking USC? I'm taking I'm 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 taking Oregon and I feel I feel pretty good about it. But I will say, I will say if by some miracle Keaton Slovis manages to win this one, I mean, are we gonna start talking about him the way we've been talking about Jaden Daniels? Hmm. Mm, that's very true. That would be a good point. Cause, it, but there's a scenario where he plays well and still loses too. But either way, I don't think yeah. that I think that JT Daniels ends up in the transfer portal. I mean, yeah, I I think that yeah, I know it's a good story that they're roommates and everything like that. But I don't think I think that there are enough teams that need a quarterback that and and that JT Daniels could possibly get an extra year of eligibility with what happened to him. Um, this year to to make up for for any transfer uh penalty of any kind and uh and who knows it might be a pac-12 team that ends up um that, that ends up you know getting him to plug plug and play there's one particular there's one particular pac-12 team who is hurting at quarterback even though jt daniels is not you know jacob eason or or justin herbert or even a key keaton slovis at this point there is one Pac-12 team, well, actually two, really, who could use his services. And well, three that would be happy to have him. <laughs> I think you got Cal, who, who if they get him, is an instant upgrade, probably. Even though it's not the type of upgrade they necessarily want. I mean, this is not Jared Goff or Aaron Rodgers, yeah. but it's an upgrade. Oregon State, because uh, Lutton's going to be gone. Luton's going to be gone. And you got Steven Montez in Colorado, who might enjoy that sort of sort of deal as well. Yep, and I mean, if all else fails, you know, we'll always take them at Wyoming. We need we need people. Well, we're bowl eligible though. <laughs> they play football in Wyoming. They do play. Come on now, they beat Mizzou. Wait, hold up, hold up. Are are you one of the people who was like, um, who was part of? Uh, Josh Allen's family who who like tweet me incessantly no, because man. I always talk about him on the radio as being a, <laughs> a terrible quarterback and a running back playing quarterback for for the Bills. I, I said he should make the Pro Bowl no, jo- as a running back. <laughs> Josh Allen can stick up for himself. He 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 he's a big boy 
he doesn't need me. Um, uh, shout out to Josh Allen for the $7,000 he just had to fork over for throwing a football into the sun uh, <laughs> in the stands in Buffalo. He's doing just fine. I'm not worried about I'm not, I don't. I don't go out of my way to defend them. If it works out, it works out. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I, I just love that anybody's even talking about a Wyoming quarterback because there's not a lot of uh, not not a lot of love shown to Larry. Uh, yeah. Well. Well. Whatever. Hey, you you are a <laughs> Wyoming boy. It's at, true. At heart, and I will be there this summer. So I think we're gonna go to Yellowstone. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. Yep. So I'm excited about that. All right, guys. Peace out. Catch you guys on Monday. Don't forget to share the podcast. Tell a friend about the podcast.